Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, the best of Risk number 18, you'll hear Mohab skit. You guys are an odd bunch. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I want to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon member, Lauren Tripp. Thank you so much, Lauren. We always give a little shout out when someone has given us $25 a month or more via our Patreon. And if you do become a member of ours at Patreon, you get all this bonus material, bonus stories, interviews with staff members and storytellers, check-ins from me, the little anecdote compilations. We have a new one of those going up. So there's just a wonderful bunch of perks to get when you become a patron of ours over there. We are still not out of the woods by any stretch as far as really needing a lot of help right now for making it through this insane period we're all living through. We figure we will be able to keep running for the next eight months or so, but, you know, who knows what the future might bring. We might find ourselves needing to apply for more government loans in the future. It remains to be seen what on earth is going to happen with advertising around podcasts. The weird thing is that the podcast is as popular as ever, so we're really hoping advertisers come back and realize we're worth it. Oh, and speaking of that, if you would like to advertise something on the show, your business, you just reach right out to me personally at kevin at risk-show.com. And if you would like to help us out with a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. So again, we need all the help we can possibly get from people for whom risk means a lot. And we know there's a lot of you out there for whom that is true. So if you can increase the amount you're giving on Patreon, wonderful. If you're not there yet, get on over there because there's so much to be found there and it really means everything to us. It means keeping risk going. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa, 
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Candido behind me now. And this is the best of Risk number 18. Every six or seven months, we do these compilations of some of our favorite stories. You know, what we've started to do is to poll you guys, is to ask the Risk community, the listeners out there, what are your favorite stories from the past six or seven months? And once again, so many people were so enthusiastic about so many stories that we ultimately settled on nine of them. And so once again, we're going to split it up into two episodes this week. The best of risk number 18 and the best of risk number 19. So they'll come out on Tuesday and Thursday of the same week. This has been... Uh, I'll tell you, just the most remarkable year in memory. Remarkable in many awful, terrible ways, but remarkable for risk in that, I'll tell you, in tough times, people clearly want to share about extraordinary moments in their life experiences, and people clearly want to hear those kinds of stories. We've gotten a lot of new listeners this year. And new listeners, by the way, are exactly the people to introduce to these best of compilations. Risk listeners are constantly telling us, oh, my friend was not really a podcast kind of a person, but I showed them how to download the best of risk number eight or whatever it might be. And then they were hooked. Uh, So we highly encourage you to share these two episodes this week, the best of risk 18 and 19 with friends, even if they don't consider themselves podcast listeners, they might be converted. Another thing we're constantly hearing from risk listeners, you tell us that you love hearing stories again. And I very much so get that. I have to hear these stories many times and am always finding new things in them. Sometimes I'll hear a story months after originally hearing it and think, wow, I'm in a different place and I really needed to hear that this week. So in a little bit here, we're going to hear just an absolutely extraordinary story by Erica Blumfield that she shared at a Risk Live show in Los Angeles last year. And then we experimented. We recorded more material with her in private And then we added music and sound design. It is a whole journey. It's an audio journey you're going to be on with Erica Blumfeld's story. But before that, we're going to hear a story that Mohab Skit shared. I think this was in Detroit. Yeah, Detroit. Remarkable. Uh, Mohab is uh, legally blind. And, well, you're in for a surprise if you've never heard this one before. Here he is now. This is Mohab Skit with a story we call Desperate Remedies. A few years ago, one evening, a middle-aged young man, no, yeah, middle-aged young man, sitting in the living room, recently divorced, 
blind, as you can see. A father of two boys who live with the ex-wife three and a half miles away. That is me. And I was contemplating the most immediate problem that I had at the time. A week from that evening, a summer vacation will be over and the fall semester will start. I have to start going back to the university at least twice a week. And I have no way of going there and coming back. At the time, I lived in Rochester Hills, around 30 miles to the north of Detroit. In the summer, I tried everything to find transportation. Tried ride-sharing services, carpooling, asked colleagues, begged friends, you name it. One side effect of the divorce was that my credit score took a big hit and I did not have a credit card. I literally that evening did not have a single dollar to my name. The idea of an Uber was impossible. So it was a real problem. This could not have come at worst time because this was the year when I had to apply for promotion and tenure. Promotion and tenure depended heavily on a good publication record, which was fine for me, and an equally good teaching record. So I could not afford to miss classes. I could not afford to go to classes unprepared. One more thing was at stake. I learned that summer that my ex-wife kept telling the children that I will be back. I cannot afford not to be back with her because nobody will drive me to the university. I will not be able to go. I will not be able to cash a salary, so I will not be able to provide for them. I needed to reassure my children, to make it known to them that the salary will be kicking in in the fall, that there will be money to provide for them and to keep their lifestyle, if not better, at least as it was. While all these ideas were running in my head, like frightened mice in a trap, I got this phone call from Dana. Dana was a friend that I was recently introduced to. She's a former teacher who quit teaching because she had back problems. And she's uh, writing grants for others and she's doing all these kinds of interesting stuff. And she was a very interesting woman. She um, had a fascination for classical music and she loved jazz. And at the same time, she could recite to you the names of hard rock bands in America in the last 40 years. She was full of contradiction. She was a very loud-spoken woman. She is very independent, and she has soft spots for roses. And she was a walking bundle of contradictions. She was so interesting. So we talked and talked, and then she sensed 
my frustration. And she asked me. I told her what the problem was. Then we had, of course, to go through the list of, did you try this? Did you try that? Did you try those? Then at the end of that long, boring list, she asks me, did you try asking me to help you? You know, questions do not cost money, right? And then I thought, yeah, they don't. And I did not try. So I asked her, Dana, would you be able to help me? And she said, yes. How would you be able to help me, I asked. She said, I can drive you to the university and drive you back. And I said, twice a week? Yes. And to the end of the semester. I'm not working, silly. You remember? Yeah. I do. Suddenly, problem was solved. She had one condition, though. And the condition is this. Because she lives 20 miles away, and I need to be at school very early in the morning, she will need to sleep in my apartment the night before. So Monday evening, she would come to my apartment. Tuesday morning, we would go. Ah, that's a good idea, I said. (laughs) We'll do that. Well, Dana and I are friends. She knows everything about me, about my divorce, my rocky, pumpy relationship with the children, and about the relationship that I'm starting now with, a, with this woman who was at the time overseas. And I know everything about her relationships too. So that was just a friendly gesture. Monday evening, first day of school, she comes to my apartment, I sleep on the floor in the living room, and she takes my bedroom. A small sacrifice. Very good. Tuesday morning, we wake up very early, we have coffee, we hit the road, and we arrive downtown on campus quarter to eight. My first class starts at 10. Amazing. First teaching day, she's waiting. At the end of the day, she picks me up, she drops me at home, and she goes her merry way. That was the first week. Perfect plan. Second week comes. Monday evening, Dana comes. She was agitated, nervous, and silent. And she is not the silent type. I start to sense something. So I uh, approach the topic. I ask questions. And then she answers abruptly, which is not how she usually answers questions. She would give you book-length answers. But she didn't. She answered abruptly. She was playing nervously with the keychain. And then I asked her, Dana, are you reconsidering our agreement? And that jiggling of the keychain stopped. And she said, that, that depends on you. Well, I would do everything in my power to keep this agreement going. I need that semester 
to work. Well, she said, okay, you know, I am doing you a favor. And that's a huge favor. I nod. And friends help each other. I also nod. And then she says, and then you would have to help me. And I would be happy to help, I said, if I can. She said, yeah, you can, all right. So how can I help, I ask. And here she says, I asked my boyfriend, and he turned me down. I asked my roommate, and she turned me down. And I'm asking you, and I don't think you can turn me down. I told her, I do not know what that is, but it sure sounds like blackmail. <laughs> and now that was her turn to nod. And I said, what if I say no? What if I can't? Then she said, tomorrow will be the last day I drive you to the university. And then I said, okay, so what was it? Out with it. She said, okay, you know, I crave urine and I want to drink it and I want to drink yours <laughs> you guys are an odd bunch You are. Okay. I do not know how, how long I was silent because all I was thinking at the time was the pictures of my children. <laughs> were really floating in my head and, and the voice of my girlfriend was crying was ringing in my ears. <laughs> but at the same time, this is the tenure and promotion semester. <laughs> this is, no, this is the paycheck semester that will show my children that I still can provide. Why are you laughing? Okay, so I agreed. But I, I uh, yeah, I agreed. I, first I said, first I said, you know, I am divorced recently. And my relationship to my children is in a difficult stage. And there is a girlfriend and you know her. She said, yeah, it is a transaction. It's not like we're having sex. We're not having sex. I want something, you'll give it to me and you want to ride and I'll give it to you. Okay. And, and the difficulty and the stress of this thing was easier and easier 
as the time went because it was not a regular thing. So life went perfect September, October, and November up until the week of the Thanksgiving break. I was even able to ask her to leave me in the university for an extra two hours where I can sit in my office, enjoy the huge screen, and write down the final edits of my book. So it was working fine. That Monday, before the Thanksgiving Thursday, something happened. I'm used to tell my children a bedtime story every night. When I was living with them, I told them the story in person. After the divorce, doesn't matter where I was in the world. Every evening, 8.30 or 9, I would call them up on the phone, tell them a bedtime story. That Monday, for an evil reason, I forgot to. I did not tell the bedtime story. So, late in the evening, the buzzer of my apartment rings. And I go and I press the button, and that's what I hear. Dad, are you okay? Oh, uh, honey, yes, I am. I am really sorry I forgot about the bedtime story. Okay, Dad, open up. No. <laughs> Dad, let's come upstairs, hear the story, and then go home to bed. I said, no, you are not. In the background, I could hear my ex-wife saying, there's probably a woman with him upstairs. Let's go. Instead of listening to her, they insisted even more. And I gave in. I opened the door, and the three of them stormed the apartment like a trained SWAT team. <laughs> and of course, they found my friend in the apartment. And then my son looks at me and says, yeah, there is a woman in the apartment, Dad. So mom was right all along. Mom said you divorced because you wanted to go chase women. I did not know what to say, but I did not want to say I was sorry. Because what they were saying was not what was going on. And I will not be able to tell them what was going on. <laughs> as fast as they came into the apartment, they left the apartment. At that moment, the two of my children stopped talking to me. They do not talk to me unless they really have to. I do not know what happened that evening afterwards. All I remember was that in the morning, I picked up the phone and I called my girlfriend and I told her everything that happened. I told her about the agreement. 
about the children. And I asked her what I can do. And she said, yeah, thank you for being honest, but you are also very selfish. You dumped this on me so I can tell you what to do. Well, it took us time, of course, for her to forgive, but she never forgets it. Every time I go out, or every time she's traveling, she remembers it. A word or two escape her mouth about them. But she was at least able to forgive me. And I hope my children will forgive me one day, like she did. Thank you. Hey there, I got a favor I need to ask. I got no way to get to school. No problem, that's not out of my way. But still, I'd like a favor back from you. You name it, what do you need? I appreciate that you're helping me. Now don't laugh, consider this carefully. Could I get a bottle of your pee? No, wait, you want my pee? Not a lot. Just a mug or three. Okay, and you'll give me a ride? Hmm, so long as you keep me well supplied. My pee? Yes. Why? Thirsty. Oh, wouldn't you rather have something else to drink? Mm -mm. Gatorade? No. Minute Maid? Nah. Coca-Cola, coffee, milk, or tea? No, just your pee. Now, I know you're a good friend to me. That's right. I'm flattered, or at least I think I ought to be. Sure. And my other options are looking pretty bleak. So, do we have a deal? I need a drink. No asparagus, please. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. As far back as I can remember, I knew I was going to be a mom. I was one of those people who would see an adorable baby and be like, yum, that baby's so delicious. I'm going to eat them up. And even when I was in high school, I would imagine myself in the future, famous actress and married and on the cover of Vanity Fair, naked with a big pregnant belly, a la Demi Moore. As it turns out, I'm 43 and I'm not a mom. And I decided that this is what's best for me. But you know, when I tell people, like when I meet people and I tell them that I'm not a mom and that this is what I decided was best for me, they'll say things like, oh, but you must be a mom. You don't know love till you're a mom. You don't know real joy. You don't know gratitude. And I would Google like motherhood and things would come up. Motherhood, all love begins and ends there. But we know that not everyone can have children and that can be really heartbreaking. And we know a lot of people don't want children for a lot of reasons. And so I think people should be more careful with their words because they don't know these people's stories. 
they don't know my story. They don't know that 15 years ago, I found myself homeless. And, you know, for me, homelessness didn't happen overnight. My house didn't burn down. It wasn't repossessed. I wasn't addicted to drugs. It was this unraveling of my mind, this process stemming from mental health issues. And I had been living in New York City for eight years. I went to NYU. I worked. I was a waitress and a bartender and a hotel concierge. I had a budding acting career and a boyfriend I was madly in love with, Connor, a musician who was in an up-and-coming indie rock band called E-Ray. <laughs> We met at an off-Broadway theater in the Garment District of Manhattan, and I was the bartender, and he was the drummer in a rock and roll musical. The first time I saw him play, I couldn't take my eyes off of him. He was dynamic, and the beats were amazing. And three weeks after meeting, I moved in with him. He would get me on the list at every hottest music venue on the Lower East Side and the East Village and Brooklyn. And we would go out after and stay out all night to dive bars like the Holiday Cocktail Lounge in Alphabet City and kick back whiskeys and chain smoke Marlboros. And every night he would sing Me to Sleep, our song 13 by Big Star which asks, will you be an outlaw for my love? I knew he would be. And my life was everything I could have ever hoped for. And one of the things that Connor loved about me was that I was so determined and I had so much passion for my life as an artist my desire to be an actor and a writer. I was writing one-woman shows and performing them anywhere I could get a spot, like the duplex in the West Village. I was having meetings with agents and managers, and I got really skinny. <laughs> and bleached my hair blonde, and I felt as hot as Debbie Harry. And I was on my way to realizing all my dreams. And my boyfriend, Connor, and I lived in utter bliss for two years. And then he began touring all the time with his band, and I took it hard. Over the course of the couple years that we were together, I had abandoned my social circle and had made him my entire life. And so I was also, for most of my adult life, estranged from my family. And so when he was gone, I was alone. And then this unraveling began of my mind. And I started experiencing these breaks from reality. 
And I started doing things with this like inexhaustible energy that I had. I would walk from Brooklyn to Manhattan and back. I would ride subways all night into all kinds of neighborhoods. I, I was praying fervently in churches, even though I was an atheist and Jewish before that. And I would walk the streets for so many days and so many nights that I, I became covered in the soot of the city. Like one night, I walked along the edge of a bridge that led from Greenpoint, where I lived, into Queens. At first, it felt like a euphoria that I imagine people only feel on drugs. It's exquisite. You see in Technicolor, everything tastes extraordinary, smells extraordinary. You can go to a museum and stand in front of a picture and feel as though you are inside of it. You are the brushstrokes. It only exists because you are there. I would go to the Met and I would stand before my favorite painting, Salome, and it glowed. It was as though it was made for me. Your emotions are so on the surface and you take everything in. You're this vessel or, or, you know, you just, everything is sensory. You have a flight of ideas that I would make millions on Shark Tank if I could remember any of them. (laughs) But most significantly, I became famous in my mind. See, I was in the midst of a bipolar manic episode, but I had become the star of my own reality show, a la The Truman Show. Like Truman, I wasn't supposed to know that this show was going on. Unlike Truman, I loved being famous. And so I didn't talk to anyone about that I knew that this was happening, that I was being filmed 24 hours a day, and it was being broadcast live. Now, I believed, even though I had never met them, that the producers of the show were Oprah and Madonna. And I believed that the whole purpose of the show was for Connor, the musician boyfriend, and myself to be in a band together. That way we wouldn't have to be apart, and Madonna would give us a record deal, and I would be on my way to that magazine cover. Basically, I felt like I was God's gift to the green earth. I mean, I was hot. I mean, even Madonna was gonna even say, oh yeah, This girl, she beats me out, and that is not Madonna's style. We were gonna be very tight. I had, you know, the self-absorbed notion that 
I was so important that everyone wanted to know about me. Now, keep in mind, I wasn't ever a singer, and I can dance, but not like Madonna dance, not even close. But in my mind, I was absolute genius, and I knew sex sells. And so I wrote this song called Flammable Nymphomaniac, and it wasn't as if I was on TV with it or getting record deals. I was in my apartment singing it and gyrating around sometimes thinking there were cameras in there. I also loved to walk down the streets of Manhattan singing at the top of my lungs because I was in a constant music video. So why not? I told Connor that I had made a little extra money while he was away. And we hired a professional music engineer and asked some of Connor's buddies to come into the studio and help us out. And we recorded this song. I dirty dance, late night trance. I'll leave you in a trance. Mischievous, a devious, a dangerously position. Are you gonna chance me? A flammable nymphomaniac. Are you gonna chance me? A flammable nymphomaniac. Make me burn, make me yearn, make my head turn. And from there, I wrote some silly songs and we would laugh and we called them the bedroom tapes. They were just something we did together for a lark. But as my delusion started getting stronger and stronger, that's when I believed that they would all be number one hits. Connor noticed I was changing and he didn't like it. When we met, I was the kind of girl who carried a journal around with her everywhere she went and would sit in Washington Square Park and read great literature all day. But now I was this girl on the loose and I was starving myself, flirting at parties, trying to get business cards from managers and people in the music industry. And I was trying to ride his coattails. He was humiliated, too, because he was a serious musician. I mean, his band was being called a more inventive Coldplay. And I was a joke. Make me burn, make me yearn, make my head turn. I want you, 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 I want you. And I was convinced that this would be a huge hit. I would surpass Madonna. Now, Connor, he didn't want to be in a band with a girlfriend, especially one who couldn't sing and never played an instrument. And he had his own thing going on. But I thought all the conflict that we were having over the band was him playing along, that it was good for ratings. And so naturally, I decided the thing to do was use the rent money that he had been sending me from the road 
to record a professional music demo because I knew we would get that record deal, but we didn't, and we got evicted. And even though I went to a doctor and started some treatment and got diagnosed with bipolar disorder and started taking mood-stabilizing medicine, even though I thought they were sugar pills, Connor did not want to be in a band with me, and he also did not want to be with someone with mental illness, he said. He had come home from the road, and there were dishes piled so high, filthy, roaches crawling everywhere. I had, like, thrown a towel over it, hoping he wouldn't notice. I was so depressed at that point that I couldn't bathe. And when he had gotten home, he did try and make love to me. And it had been so many days since I showered that he had to ask me to go shower. After he had been home for a few weeks, I told him that I wanted to die. Things were strained. I knew the end was coming in the depression. And I picked up a knife and I held it to my wrist. And he said, go ahead and do it already. Just don't make a mess. I don't want to have to clean it up. But when I was manic, I thought, what great drama. And he broke up with me. Eviction was pending. He moved his stuff out. And I was alone waiting for the knock to come. So I, with the little money I had, flew out west to Los Angeles with my one vintage blue 1950s suitcase with a busted lock from the Goodwill, my floral decoupaged hat box with my favorite hat, a white wide brim hat like the one Bianca Jagger wore the day she married Mick and my bottle of mood stabilizing pills and I knew that Connor would follow me to LA and we would get that record deal and I found myself with almost no money and without a home so I checked into a sex worker motel It was in Van Nuys, the porn capital of the world, or California, and it had a nautical theme. The bed was itchy, I remember, and I was convinced there were bed bugs, and I slept in the bathtub with my blanket and the pillow. There were people living there with children, also homeless, There'd also be some tourists, though. Maybe they didn't realize where they were checking in. 
I guess the idea was that you could be in and out. You didn't have to rent the room for the whole day. They were conducting their business out of there. I would see people passing through, leaving rooms. It was this bizarre juxtaposition of some tourists sitting out by the dirty pool with women in Daisy Dukes and tops that could have been mistaken for bras and strange men walking in and out of the lobby. And I remember watching everyone thinking, what good actors. This seems so real. Something that was a theme in the mania, too, was that somehow I was going to be able to help people. It seemed purposeful for the show as well. Good ratings, and I was somehow going to be able to help a sex worker get off the street. That I was going to be able to help. It was like sometimes I was dangling from this thin thread of reality where I would question the notion of this reality show and I would think, if this isn't real, you're in serious trouble. But the delusion was so grand and it was so powerful that it would like push that little bit of reality out of my mind and get a grip of my mind and I'd think the producers have a plan (laughs) and ratings must be sky high everything's gonna be fine I would go to the Goodwill and try on outfits just for fun I spent a lot of time looking in the mirror and like doing monologues into mirrors and I just sauntered the streets and would talk to whoever would talk to me. In LA, I used to spend a lot of time at Marilyn Monroe's grave crying and saying, the world destroyed you, like the world is destroying me. I'm at the store on the corner just down from the motel and I was buying some donuts, counting out pennies, when the purple eye-shadowed prostitute whose room was next door to mine with these like talons for fingernails, she handed the woman behind the counter a dollar and she said, it's on me. And we walked out and I thanked her and she told me her name, Sapphire. And as we walked back towards the hotel, she looked down at my feet in my flip-flops and she said, girl, you have got to get those feet pedicured. I'll loan you some polish. She continued and she said, look, I don't know your story. I don't need to know your story, but you seem like a nice girl. There is a blood plasma bank not far. You can sell it, get some cash, and they give you a juice and cookie too. I'm at the plasma bank, and the guy behind the counter, he's like very pale and chubby, and he's wearing a lab coat, and he hands me the form to fill out. And I look around the room, and I think, these are not the type of people I'm accustomed to being around. And they certainly don't smell like the people I'm accustomed to being around. 
And I think, wow, the casting department is so good. In my bipolar episodes, my perceptions would fluctuate. When I was more on the depressive side and I would pass a homeless person or see, in this instance, in the waiting room of the blood plasma bank to donate, I was scared. I was scared. I would have this sense that my situation was dire, (sighs) that I was lost, that I was alone, that I was in danger. But when I was manic, I believed they were the extras and I was the star. And there was this plot line running through my head, a successful college graduate, New Yorker, has a fall and ends up slumming it, losing everything. And the idea of me clawing my way back would show that anything is possible. It was all very exciting. I was getting to meet a sex worker in the flesh. I was going to a place where I remember I had only known about from some dark ABC special once that my parents let me stay up too late to watch. A blood bank. And so I'm filling out the form, like, history of this, allergies, medications you're on, and I hand it in to him. He's looking it over, and then he, he looks up at me, and he's all red in the face now, scrunched up. And he started shouting at me, your plasma is toxic. What do you want to do? Give mothers two-headed babies? And I was stunned. The image of the mothers distraught looking at their deformed baby. The thought of my own deformed baby and that thin thread that I was dangling from, I was grabbing a hold of, and maybe the medications kind of working, and the shock from what he said. I'm mentally ill, and I have to take this medication for the rest of my life. That's what they said. They said it would be a very slippery slope without it. And if that's true, what would happen to my baby. There would be no baby. Not the baby I imagined. There would be no famous husband. There'd be no acting career. I had lost everything. And the one thing that could have been mine that I knew no matter what would keep me going was over. It feels like my body betrayed me. 
I mean, anyone who's ever held a baby, you know, you feel the warmth and you feel the little hands maybe grabbing for your hair and you feel heart against heart. And I wanted that. Why wouldn't someone want that? Until you figure out. (laughs) It's a lot of work. But there was a sense that the ultimate would be bringing a life into the world that you could show that no matter what they face or have to go through, that I would be there for them. And so many people don't have that. And I wanted to give that. And I knew I would get a lot in exchange too. It's not completely selfless. I get back to the motel and Sapphire was waiting for me and she asked me how it went. And it all poured out, my confusion, this reality show, Oprah and Madonna, and the baby, the baby that I would never have. And Sapphire said, girl, you've got bigger fish to fry than having a baby. And besides, babies aren't all they're cracked up to be. Through Sapphire's help, I found a California state-funded, God love California, not God, whatever, the universe, and sorry, (laughs) just had to clarify, and um, it was for people with mental illness and who were homeless, and I lived there for two and a half years till I was stable enough to live on my own. The two and a half years I spent in the recovery home had ups and downs. My bipolar was fiercely determined to rule my mind. We tried many different medications and it can take a really long time. The other clients, patients, consumers were chronically homeless most addicted to drugs and or alcohol, and many who had criminal records. There was this night, it was my night to cook. I got really into it, (laughs) and I made a gourmet meal of pasta with fresh mozzarella and peppers. They like gave us a budget. And Gary, he was homeless, and he had schizoaffective disorder, And I made this dinner, and he looked up after he took his bite, and he said, thank you. This is like a five-star hotel meal. And is weird and bizarre and out of anything I had ever conceived of. I felt proud of myself and less alone, and I felt like... He needed to eat more at five-star hotels because my food was really not that good. (laughs) But I had so much love to give. 
I got out of the home, and although the mania was reined in, I still really struggled with the depression. My psychiatrist suggested that I volunteer somewhere, and immediately a nonprofit came to mind where I could go and volunteer and help children after school with their homework and help them with writing. And I did that. And it started lifting the depression. I had that old feeling again that I had when I played with my cousins, that I had when I was a camp counselor. This feeling of everything is okay. It saved me because it allowed me to contribute to something bigger, something important for kids who didn't have a lot, right? Some kids have all the luck and all the privilege. Some don't. And maybe even that in a way. Just this desire to help those that people may not realize need help. They knew I was had gone off my rocker and I had a special conversation with them. They had called me in and they recognized me from the neighborhood. And I'm really passionate about people being given a fair chance in this life and people looking out for people because people look out for me. The other day, I was with a new friend, and we passed by this woman, this woman who was ranting, covered in the filth of the city, and I said, I can't believe that this is what's going on in society. I can't believe that this is happening, that we walk by people who need help, myself included. And he said, she's never coming back. She's a waste of a life. And I thought to myself, how many people walked by me and thought that? And I thought, how many people didn't? Like Sapphire. And I said to him, one day I'll tell you my story and maybe you'll change your mind. And the only thing I know to do is share my story so that people realize that every life is salvageable. And so when people say, you must be a mother to know joy and love, and gratitude, I know that what I feel, all of those things that I feel for the people who helped me along the way and who continue to help me is immeasurable. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Philip Glass behind me now, and we just heard from Erica Blumfield. Holy camoles, what a story. You can find Erica at Erica Blumfield on Instagram. And that story was edited by our audio editor, John LaSala, and our story coach, David Crabb did a lot of work with Erica behind the scenes on preparing that story. And before Erica, we heard that incredibly ridiculous song that our episode editor Jeff Barr created. What is it called? It's uh, How It Really Went Down. Yeah, to me, it sounds like a, a Sesame Street song. Don't forget... We are always hoping to get some of your original songs or sound collages or short anecdotes. If you need any more information, please don't hesitate to email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a Great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. 
Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Okay, now the final two stories we're going to hear on this week's episode are indeed both so remarkable. The final one is a short anecdote that was recorded by a risk listener, Pete Brown, heard us calling for short anecdotes and sent in a remarkable story that he recorded at his dad's bedside as his dad was dying. But before that, we're going to hear uh, definitely one of the most talked about stories probably in risk history. Here is a story that was recorded in Austin, Texas last year when risk was still touring around the country. Uh, I guess I should say it's not for the squeamish. There's some very unusual cuisine being consumed in this one. This story is called This Is My Body by Shiny. Shit, there's a lot of you people out there. All right, all right. Nine months out of a 13-year toxic relationship, I'm riding my motorcycle through the mountains. If you've never been on a motorcycle, it's fantastic. You can't think of anything else but what you're doing right there. So to ease your mind to, to ride was my favorite thing. So Memorial Day weekend, I'm cruising through the mountains, enjoying my singlehood, trying to get my life back on track. And I see up ahead of me a truck and another car, and coming up ahead, there's a car that stops, and there's a fishing area off to the side. And as I'm coming up to it, this car stops, and other cars start stopping behind it, and it lets the trucks go by, and as I get closer to it, it still stopped. And I say, okay, to myself. It stopped, I'm safe, I start going, and right as I get up to it, He hits the gas and hits the back of my motorcycle. It's very vague at that point because all I remember is the motion of it and flipping through the trees. And so I immediately sit up and I take off my helmet. I'm looking around going, holy shit. And there's this intense burning. I look down and I'm seeing too much of myself because there's bones sticking out. And my foot still has a shoe on, but it's kind of hanging down below there like that. And in my mind, I'm just going, fuck, fuck, fuck. And then I just start screaming, fuck, fuck, fuck. Okay, somebody get down here and help me. Holy shit, what the fuck is going on? The kid who hit me. I say kid. He was very young. He's out there with his girlfriend, as I found out. Never met him. But I understand. You don't want to go down there and see that, the product. And it's a scary thing. But some people came down to help me out. 
there was a, a family going through the mountains, and a young woman who had just taken a safety course comes down and puts a tourniquet on my leg. And a woman, because up in the mountains, she's a hippie, and so she's coming out, and she's putting essential oils on my face. <laughs> and I'm getting all shocky, and this shit's getting on my face, and she's like, this will help. And I'm like, please, get the fuck off me. <laughs> this time spread was very short in how it actually went, but it seemed like a much longer time to me. About a half an hour to get into the ambulance, and a half hour in the ambulance, getting to the helicopter, and them saying, okay, here's what's going on, yada, 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 and do you want some morphine? I'm like, fuck yes, give me morphine. But then it doesn't really help, and I'm just nauseous. I'm like, no more morphine, please. And they get me to the helicopter, and they say, do you want some ketamine? I'm like, fuck, why not? Let's do it. I've always wanted to be on a helicopter. It seems so damn cool. I remember none of it. All I remember is colors and emotions and shapes and the sound of the thump, 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 thump. And it was only a half-hour ride, but fucking hell, I transcended time and space. (laughs) And during that time, because I'm fucking scared, all I could think is, I don't want to die. Back there in the woods, I gave my phone numbers away to you know people I wanted uh, them to call. Just tell them that I love them, because I have no idea what's going on. All I know is I'm seeing meat and bone, there's pieces missing, and I'm scared out of my mind. And so while I'm tripping balls on this helicopter, all I can think is, what the fuck have I done with my life? My whole growing up, I've never really been happy. And I don't mean that as like, you know, I've been depressed. It's just been a whole lot of meh. I've never really had joys. My upbringing, my parents were very dry bread. I can't remember them saying to each other that they love each other. And that's just kind of how everything was. So my emotions were, to say the least, stunted through most of my life. In relationships and work and kind of all of my life. So when I say I was in a toxic relationship for 13 years, well, I played a part in that. It wasn't the entire part, but I own it. I'm trying to figure out when I'm, you know, 35 years of age, how to put everything back together. And all I'm saying to myself is, if I survive this, I'm going to try to do better. I wake up in the hospital, and I, I jump to that because I don't remember shit. But... My mom's there, my dad's there, and two of my best friends are there. My mom, she's a school teacher forever and has all the hair that breast cancer left her, which is not much. But from her empathy and her compassion, she's, all, that's all she's got left in her life is the kindness. And I see the worry on her face. I see my dad, who never seemed scared because that's who he is, the stoic man, who has had the same mustache from the 70s. It's like the little handlebar that goes down. Never changed. He shaved it off once, and it scared everybody shitless. <laughs> I see my best friend, who has always looked young for his age, like very young for his age. But he's like one of the strongest people I've ever met in my life. And his wife, who looks old for her age, and she's generally older than him, about 10 years older, And so they make an odd pair, but they're such a fucking great couple. They stay with me that night. A couple days later, 
one of my other good friends, uh, a friend who I met in college, and I'll talk about more her here in a minute. She calls the Amputee Coalition because the doctors keep saying to me, you're going to have to take this foot off. They put it back together. It's kind of foot-shaped, but they have it under a, a rotisserie, sort of heat lamp kind of going on. And I'm like, that could be a foot, man. You can't tell me it's not. But they start bringing in CAT scans and things, and they're all like, you see all those sharp pieces? That's not supposed to be like that. So my friend, she calls the Amputee Coalition. This man, Thomas, comes in, and he walks in. He strolls right in. Not a problem in the world. He's got shorts on, because that's what you do when you go in to meet somebody in the hospital who's had a traumatic injury. And he sits down and tells me a story. He tells me, all right, I was in the military, and I had a severe accident, as much like yours. My foot was kind of pulverized. Over five years, I had about 35 surgeries. And during that whole time, I was living with my parents, and I'm living out of a wheelchair, and I was fucking miserable. I was addicted to drugs, because all I'm doing is taking pain medication, because it hurts all the time. And all I wanted was to have my life back. And then I met a guy who just said, just chop it off. What are you doing? And so he did. And six months later, he's up and walking. And he has his life back. And he's getting things back and going. That's why he joins his coalition to come out and talk to people. That's when I kind of get the idea. I'm an active person. I can't sit still. I hate sitting down. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is where we're going to go. So in the hospital, they kept my room very hot because I wanted to encourage vascular flow because they've said, well, if you're going to try to keep it, we should try to make it as good as possible. So it's hot as hell in there. It's probably about 93, 95 degrees in my room at any time. And so me not liking heat, I'm not wearing any clothes. I just have the sheets and I have just people visiting Going back to saying where like I never was really super happy and not an emotional person, that extended to all my friends as well. All my friends at that time, I kind of treated as drinking buddies. We go, we hang out, we shoot the shit, terrible, terrible jokes, but I never felt connected to them. I never felt like I had best friends. I was always feeling alone. And I start seeing these people show up. They're telling me how scared they were and how much they're happy that I'm still around and how much they would miss me. And I'm starting to get the idea that I had these friends. It was a deficit on my part. That this love that I was craving from people and that I wanted in my life but was afraid to like reach out and ask for had been there. I just, I was blind to see it. So the leg comes off. And during that night, one of my best friends, I met her in college. After our freshman year, we're like, let's get an apartment together. And our parents are all like, you're a boy and a girl. This is a stupid idea. What if you get together? I'm like, well, then we'll get a one-bedroom apartment. It's fine. <laughs> but it was always a very platonic relationship. We're always just very good friends. And many years later, this accident happens to me. She lives probably five miles away doesn't have a car, but every day rides the bus to come over and see me every single day. And the night my leg came off, she was there with me. And it's a weird sensation because you kind of wake up 
And you look down, it's like, all right, it's not there anymore. But you can still feel it. The nerves, they have a memory, and it's the eeriest thing to see that your leg's not there, but I can wiggle my toes, and I can feel it, and I can feel it itching. And as the night progresses on, that itching becomes a burning, and then that burning is just an untamable fire, and it's pain, and it's aching with every pulse, and it's just killing me. The nurses are coming in, and they're giving me more drugs, and they're trying to figure everything out, and it's just nothing's helping at all. And through it all, she's sitting there, she's holding my hand, and she tells me, don't worry, I'm here with you. Whatever you're going through, I'm right here with you, and I'm not going to leave your side. I'd never been so grateful for somebody to just hold my hand and to be next to me because that shit was scary. It was intense, and it was painful. Then, you know, they put the stint in and they give me some more drugs and I finally get over it. And over a couple days, things kind of get better. Then I go home. My best friend, the young guy, he's, we both have a very dark sense of humor. And we always would like telling horrible, terrible jokes to each other. Oftentimes because, you know, we worked in an animal shelter and that's kind of what you do to relieve the stress on yourself. During that time, he's like, well, if it comes off, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, you know I want it back. He's like, well, what are you going to do with it? And keep in mind, I don't remember a lot of this time because of all the drugs. So I had to clear things up with him. I called him up a couple weeks ago when we were trying to figure this whole story out. And I said, fill me back in on this, how this all came about. And he said, as he recalled, in the moment... It seemed like eating it was important to you. <laughs> As a way of totally getting it back, like you weren't really losing it that way. And so because of that, it became important to me too. This tells you the kind of friends I have. That's a true friend. When you're high on drugs in the hospital and you say, I want to get my leg back, it's mine, fuck it, they're not throwing it away, and I'm going to fucking eat it. And they're all like, yeah, bro, let's do it, all right. So I broached this with the doctors. And keep in mind, I just said, I want it, it's mine. I want to have it back. And the doctor, I only see him about five minutes a day, and he stops, turns around, and just kind of looks at me. He's like, what do you want it back for? And I said, well, it's mine. I, I, want, like, I want a doorstop. I want a taxidermy. I want to have my leg just sitting right there. Your taxidermy to freeze-dried so I can shove it in the corner. Because, you know, how cool would that be? And people would ask me, like, why don't you put it in a jar? And because I'm going to drop it. I only have one damn leg. It's going to be a mess. Thank you. This is making it much easier. Thank you all. So the doctor said he'd never been asked about that before. And he told me, well, 
let me see what I can do. That's never come up before, but I'm going to talk with the people higher up in the hospital. Let's see what we can do. And he comes back a couple days later and he says, here's what we're going to do. You're going to sign these forms. Go and go through the pathology department. And after a time, they're going to test it, make sure it's okay, and then we'll give it back to you. So, cool. So I had to broach this with other friends. I remember one friend, Lacey. We go over to her house, you know, have a group of friends for game nights. I kind of said, like, so I'm pitching this idea around. I want you guys to like, not freak out. But, hey, would you all be interested in coming over and let's just, like, eat a little bit of human flesh, particularly mine? <laughs> and, again, these circles of friends that I go into... She was all like, oh, yeah, let's do that. And she's like, well, let me call my boyfriend, Bob. He's a professional chef. He should cook this shit. So she calls him right there on the phone. I had briefly met him once. Very nice guy. But he's all like, babe, what the fuck are you talking about? And so like, no, no, we're getting it back. It's going to be totally cool. So then the party, the game, became a night of, okay, one, is this safe? And two, is this legal? So this becomes a whole thing of, like, ethical cannibalism. <laughs> like, I'm giving of this freely. There's no, like, stabbing or anything. There's no murder or anybody's like, yeah, I'm going to eat you, become part of me, or any shit like that. It's just, hey, let's have a good time. Eat some people meat. <laughs> So we kind of get this planned out. They call me up and say, okay, we're ready to give your foot back to you. I go to the hospital and I bring a backpack and I have like a little cooler and stuff because I have no idea how this is coming to me. I figure they freeze it or something. And they just, they hand me this red plastic bag and there's just a foot in it. And they're all like, sign this. And they give me a foot. I put that shit in my backpack. Uh, walk out. <laughs> and I go home and I stick it in the freezer because the idea was, at that point, I still wanted a doorstop and so I was going to cast it. I was going to like put some plaster and shit and make a mold of it because we called like 13 taxidermists and they wouldn't talk to us anymore. <laughs> and we... Uh, called up a couple freeze-drying places, and that's crazy expensive. It's like $1,200 to freeze-dry a foot. I didn't have that money. So I'm all like, okay, we're going to you know, cast this thing and have some friends over early in the morning. And we take it out of the bag, and it's bizarre. And I'm holding my foot, and I'm cleaning it off because there's loads of blood and iodine left on it. And like there's this bone sticking out of the top this meat and I could see like the flesh where I had the accident and they kind of put it back together I have no ownership over this thing it's like a movie prop it's bizarre okay well here's a foot it wasn't even gross the eeriest thing about it was the absence of the emotions that I should be having over it it was blank and so while they're getting up and mixing all the stuff together to get the plaster ready, 
I take a little knife and cut along the skin and kind of peel it back down along the shin, take it down the bone and slice it off a little bit, and I come down and the uh, bottom of it and cut back a little bit. I come away with about three ounces of meat. And my friends, they're watching me do this. And they're all like, hey, you okay? <laughs> because there's a look on my face as I'm sitting here doing this, and I, I say to them, no, man, this is fucking weird. This is, no. I'm holding my foot and cutting it up so we can eat it. No. I'm not okay. And I stick it in the freezer in like a little sandwich bag behind the Girl Scout cookies so no one else sees it. They happen in there. I don't want to have to explain that shit. So we have the brunch. And it's fucking lovely. My friend Lacey, she has this big country house from her family. Her boyfriend's over there, and he has marinated this thing overnight. I walk in there, well, I crutch in there, and it's like flowers set up, and there's an outdoor table under the pergola. There's wine glasses for mimosas, and there's all kinds of pastries, and like, it's fucking beautiful. All my friends are there. Bob's sitting there chopping up like onions and little peppers and shit. And he takes out the meat, he chops it up, and he's sautéing it. He's got some little fucking sauce he's put on that. And it smells really good. (laughs) And when he does, like online I always call it foot tacos, but it's not really true. It's more like foot tostada tapas. Like little tostadas with a little bit of meat and shit on them and chopped into like quarters. So there's about 12 pieces there. It wasn't a lot of meat. There's like 10 people. Everybody has to get a taste. <laughs> so we down a shit ton of mimosas and we sit down around this table and we're making terrible, terrible jokes to kill the creep vibe that is just hanging heavy in the air. Because you're told all your life, like, only psychopaths go out and eat people. (laughs) You know, here we are. And so there's the inevitable, I have to stand up in front of them and say, take this, this is my body. (laughs) I have a friend who says, This is the first time you've been in 10 people at once. (laughs) And we all take our little chunks and our little chimchurri sauce and take a bite. And I got to tell you, it was tasty, but chewy. Tasty and chewy and beefy, like like bison beefy. This isn't like the other white meat pork bullshit. This is like super beefy, stringy, fucking chewy. And we're gnawing at this for a little bit. A little more mimosa, trying to wash it down. My best friend's wife goes, I'm so fucking sorry. I got to spit you out. 
puts it in a little napkin and puts it over to the side. <laughs> Buddy Spike, on the other hand, he's all like, there's one piece left. Can I have that shit? <laughs> we kind of sit there and enjoy ourselves and make terrible jokes. And that was kind of the end of that chapter in my life. And it was fitting. It was a fitting into it. Because it was kind of like a fuck it, let's go sort of moment. About three months after that, I quit my job. It just didn't suit me anymore. I wasn't happy with it for a while, but I was just doing it because it's my fucking job. What else am I going to do? But no, I quit it. And I moved down here to Austin. I got an opportunity to try out construction. Well, sure, why not? I hear there's money in that. Well, fuck yeah, there is. And I'm making it. And yeah. I come down here and I start dating. I meet this fantastic woman. First date. She has all these first date questions. She's a professional dater. She's good at this shit. (laughs) On the first date, she asked me, what's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? I'm like, I just met you. I'm not going to tell you. But the second weirdest thing was I ate some pig ears, uh, a Jean-Lan Bao place in San Francisco. And she's like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. You got to tell me. And so I did. That date was about six hours long. (laughs) She's the fucking coolest person. Uh, We got married back in May. And we're going on our honeymoon in two weeks, so fuck yeah. Life has just gotten rich and beautiful and vibrant. And all these people that I talk to now, it's open. And these grisly, deep, emotional conversations to get to know one another and be honest with each other. And it's beautiful. It's everything I wanted. It's a weird thing. To like be thankful to be hit by a car and have your foot come off. To have all this shit in your life. But that's where I am. And then I'm up here talking to you lovely people. So how nice is that? Thank you all very much. Just after midnight, I'm in a nursing home in Cleveland, Ohio, at the bedside of my 94-year-old father, who is dying. You can probably hear him breathing here in the background. He's not dying from coronavirus, by the way. He's got end-stage congestive heart failure. In bad timing, I guess. But we're at the part of his care where we're just trying to keep him comfortable. 
it's the end of day two. We're going into day three. In that whole time, he's been awake. Maybe for two minutes. And every time his eyes open, my three sisters and I rush over. And we tell him that we love him. And we hold his hand and we tell him it's okay to go. Go be with our mom, who he misses so dearly, who died six years ago from cancer. This afternoon he woke up for a bit and he hugged each of us. But he didn't say anything. And then he looked at the TV and the president was on. And he made a sour face and he went, Ugh, Trump. And for a couple hours after that, I was scared to death that that was going to be his last words. But it wasn't. A little bit after dinner time, my sisters were preparing to leave. I'm taking the night shift to be with them tonight. And out of nowhere, he opened his eyes, but he found his voice for the first time in a couple of days. And he said, hey, hey, there's a table on the corner and it's only ten bucks. And we rushed over to his bedside. And I was about to ask about the table when my sister Marty goes, We got the table. I bought it for you. We've got it. And my other sister was like, It's a great table. And then they held his hands and we cried. And we said, You can go see Mom. It's okay to let go. Bring her the table. It's a nice one. But he was back to sleep just like that. And as my sisters were putting their coats on, I leaned down to my dad's ear and I shouted, Hey, I paid for half that table, just so you know. And the three of us laughed. Tired laughs, but good laughs. And that's about it. It's 12.15 now. It's just he and I in the room. I'm listening to his ragged breath and wondering when it's going to happen. I love you, Dad. And it's okay to go. Go be with Mom. She's waiting for you. And she's going to love the table. Not, not, not. 
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This has been the best of risk number 18. And the best of risk number 19 will be out later this week. We just heard from Pete Brown. Remarkable recording that Pete made for us. You can find Pete on Twitter at Pete Brown Says. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Folks, if you check the notes on your podcast player, the episode notes, you will see all sorts of links for how to get in contact with us, you know, engage more with us at risk and uh, become more a part of all the stuff that we're doing. For example, you can, of course, support Risk on Patreon at patreon.com slash risk, and there's all sorts of bonus content there. You can make a one-time donation to Risk at paypal.me slash risk show, and we very much so need it these days. You can get tickets to Risk live streams at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, the next ones are on September 10th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern or September 26th at 10 p.m. Eastern, which is, of course, 7 p.m. Pacific. These live streams are just phenomenal. And we're doing them just a little bit less often now. So make a point of putting them in your calendar. That's September 10th and September 26. You can always find The Risk Book at theriskbook.com. You can take our storytelling classes at thestorystudio.org. Oh my gosh, there are so many opportunities. There are these one-session master classes that we're doing. I believe we're going to have one about improving your stories by adding details, specific, interesting, telling details by Brad Lawrence. And another one coming up soon, storytelling for job interviews. A whole other aspect of what we do is we do corporate workshops for storytelling around the business world. And Cindy Freeman is the guru, the whiz at that. So look all of that up at thestorystudio.org. You can hire me to make personalized little videos. <laughs> me singing happy birthday or me doing an old state sketch or me doing some risk 
thingy or just giving a sincere pep talk, whatever it might be, that is at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. You can also hire me for an actual you know, consultation about storytelling, you know, uh, to help you work on a story at kevinallison.com. And then there's the whole texting thing that I do. I text with risk fans on a daily basis at joinsubtext.com slash risk show. Other than that, be sure and get involved with us on our socials on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. We have the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook, our subreddit, Risk Podcast. On Twitter and Instagram, I am at the Kevin Allison. And we're particularly looking for scary stories right now for our upcoming Halloween episode. So if you have a scary story idea, or if you know someone who has a scary story, email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. was tasty, but chewy. Tasty and chewy. Fucking chewy.